Well, brethren, it's been said that words matter. Words are our primary way of communicating with each other. So how we use and define words is very important. That's true in regular life, but it's also double true when it comes to matters of belief and doctrine. Sometimes religious words can become so overused, so commonplace, that they lose their meaning, or their meaning can be watered down. And sometimes if those words aren't used carefully and responsibly, it can lead to other problems. And I want to talk about one such word today. It's a word that we hear frequently. It's a word that can be used in many ways in many different contexts. And it's a word that, if misused and misdefined, can lead to doctrinal error. And that word is Christian. Christian. What exactly does that word mean? And how do we use it as God's people And why is it so important to understand that word correctly, or better stated, to define that word correctly? Brethren, today we're going to take a look at that question. This afternoon, we're going to look at this word and ask the question, how exactly does the Bible define Christian? Or we could say, how does the Bible define a true Christian? What is a Christian according to the Bible? not according to the dictionary, not according to different religions. What does the Bible say a Christian is? Though, of course, we won't be able to cover every scripture we could look at on the topic, my purpose with this message is twofold. Number one, to help us to have a clearer and stronger personal understanding of the word. And number two, to encourage us to be more careful and precise in how we use it. How do we use that word Christian? So if you like titles, the title to the message today is The Biblical Definition of Christian, or of a Christian. But before we get into the scriptures, I do want to address why I feel this is an important topic for us to review in the church. Why is it such a grave danger if this word is misdefined? Well, to understand that, we have to go back a few years in our history, back to the 1990s. You know, sometimes we go back to that time. Now, when we think of the 1990s, we think of the doctrinal error that came into the church. And uh, there are certain things we think about. But there there is one error that came into the church that we may not think of immediately. Now, if we go back to 1993, that's roughly when the church we were a part of started introducing a form of Trinitarianism into its beliefs. And around the same time, they started changing other things. You know, you could wear a cross. That was fine. Pictures of Jesus, maybe not the best thing to do, but it's up to you. Uh, Vote in worldly elections, personal decision. Of course, 1994 was when the new covenant was reinterpreted to say that, well, the Sabbath, the holy days, tithing, clean and unclean meats, those weren't required under the new covenant. They're more optional. But before those changes, before 1993, before 1994, there was another change that was perhaps a bit more subtle. In the early 90s, and I went through some of our old newspapers, the Worldwide News, to trace the history, the leadership of that church began slowly changing the definition of the word Christian. Instead of teaching the full biblical definition as we had always taught for years, the church began to broaden the definition of a Christian, essentially coming to the conclusion that a Christian is anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and shows love towards other people. 
and, and the scripture that was specifically cited over and over again was John 13, 35. You are my disciples if you love one another. And that was kind of focused in on as that's the definition of a Christian. Now, that's part of the definition of a Christian. So we see there's a problem when we just take one scripture and make it the end-all, be-all. So a very broad definition of Christianity was brought into the church, and that had a natural implication. If a Christian is simply anyone who believes in Jesus and shows love, then there could be Christians in all denominations, which led to another implication. If you didn't have to to believe what we had taught, if you didn't have to be different and distinct to be a true Christian, why continue to be different and distinct? If you teach that a true Christian can be a Christian but not obey God's laws, not observe the Sabbath, then you're opening the door to rejecting those laws. Again, why continue to be distinct if you don't have to? And, of course, I believe that change opened the gates to what came later. It was the natural consequence of that subtle adjustment in definition of that word. Brethren, this is one reason why I believe it's so important for us in the church today to continue to have a very crystal clear definition, a biblical definition, because that helps us to remain guarded against the errors that come from broadening that definition. Having a clear biblical understanding of what a Christian is, in a sense, we could say, builds a wall of defense around God's truth. It's not the only wall of defense, but it is an an important wall of defense. So, brethren, I think it's very important. But also, it's very important to understand the definition of a Christian for our personal lives, because when we review this and look at what the Bible says a Christian is, we can evaluate our lives in comparison with that to make sure we are truly living up to and striving to fulfill that definition in our lives. So it has multiple reasons why it's important. So we've now covered why it's important, so let's get into this topic. How exactly does the Bible define a true Christian? Well, let's first go to Jesus Christ's words in the Olivet Prophecy, so we'll turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at several points later, but I think it's always good to anchor something and to to build the foundation, if possible, on the direct words of Jesus Christ, because he's ultimately the authority we look to. If we want a definition of a Christian, why not look at the words of the one whose name, whose title forms the basis of that word, Christ? A Christian is a follower of Christ. Well, what did Christ say a true Christian is? Well, he spent a number of verses, well, we call them verses. It would have been minutes and time for him when he was delivering this message, defining, essentially defining what a Christian is. Though he wasn't using that word, that word wasn't coined until later. We find it in the book of Acts, actually primarily the enemies of the church using it, but there's nothing wrong with the word. But he essentially does spend a few verses here defining Christianity. How did he describe it? Did he define it broadly or did he define it narrowly? Well, let's begin looking in verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. These are very familiar scriptures, but let's look at them through this context. How did Jesus Christ define a Christian? Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So first of all, he says it's narrow. It's not broad, it's narrow. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So we begin here with these first two verses. He sets the parameters of Christianity through three words, narrow, difficult, few. Narrow, difficult, few. From the outset, he narrows the definition. Again, he doesn't broaden it. It's not general. He's, he's narrowing it. It's a narrow path. So we could say point one from this section of scripture is a true Christian practices a way of life that's narrow, difficult, and unpopular. So that's the beginning. Narrow, difficult, unpopular. That's what we're looking for when we're looking for true Christianity. Verse 15, let's continue. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He now goes on to, we could summarize this, define the idea of false Christianity, that that is possible and it will be popular. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. There's going to be bad things that are produced, even under the name of Christ. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So here he's saying, okay, now fruits are a big factor. A Christian will be living living a way of life defined by certain fruits, Now, he doesn't really define those fruits here in detail. Paul would do that later in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. But he's saying there are specific fruits that will define a Christian's life. So point number two of this section of scripture, a true Christian doesn't just profess beliefs, but produces specific fruits. There's specific results of their life that you look for. So we know it's difficult, narrow, and few, and then we know that there are certain fruits that are going to result from a true Christian's life. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Big, very important definition scripture. He makes an extremely bold statement here that not everyone who just professes that he's Lord is actually a true Christian. Christians are those who do the will of the Father, and the Father is connected. If you look at definitions in dictionaries, it's typically a Christian is someone who believes in the teachings of Jesus or accepts Jesus as personal Savior. Well, that's, that's correct, but the Father is involved too. A true Christian, we would say point three, is one who follows the Father and does his will. True Christians are followers of the Father and the Son, and they do something. They do the will of the Father. Continuing in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have you not prophesied in, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. Sometimes we take what, what is said, and this is in the form of the negative, a false Christian practices lawlessness. Well, what does that imply about a true Christian? Point number four, a true Christian practices lawfulness. A true Christian believes and obeys God's law. 
So Christ connects the law with a true Christian. If a false Christian ignores or doesn't believe in the law or only keeps, observes part of it, then a true Christian is one who believes the law, accepts it, strives to obey it, and believes all of it. So a true Christian practices lawfulness. So just from these 10 verses, we've been able to construct a, a, a pretty decent working definition of a Christian, just from Christ's words. Number one, a Christian is part of a relatively small group. Again, narrow, difficult, few. Number two, a Christian bears specific fruits in their life. Number three, a Christian does the will of the Father. And number four, a Christian obeys the law of God or practices lawfulness. So again, even without looking at any other scriptures, if, if we encounter somebody who is advocating a very broad, narrow, general view of Christianity, Matthew 7 is a good place to go that shows that Jesus Christ did not teach a broad, narrow definition. He, teach, he taught he taught a much more, he didn't teach a broad definition, he taught a much more narrow definition. So now let's build on that definition that we just derived from Christ's words and look at some specific points from other parts of Scripture, some other very clear scriptures that define what a Christian is and strengthen that foundation of that definition. So let's now look at point number one. Point number one the biblical definition of a true Christian. A true Christian is one who specifically is called and selected by God the Father. Very basic. This is very much a review point, but I don't believe we can ever review this point too much. We know Mr. Franks brings it up. Let's review the classic scripture, John 6.44. John 6.44. What does it tell us? about how one becomes a true Christian. Because, I mean, it's a very relevant point because when you look at the world of true Christianity, the perspective of convincing people to become a Christian is always from the point of view of the Christian. You're trying to win souls for Christ. You're trying to convince people to become a Christian. You're trying to get them to give their heart to the Lord. And in the world of Christianity, the idea of God initiating that process is not really emphasized. So John 6.44 tells us, Christ says, no one can come to me, come to Christ, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. But we don't usually focus. He reiterates the points in verse 65, so let's look at that, because we usually read verse 44, but he reiterates the point. Verse 65, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So again, very basic, but very fundamental as to how the process of becoming a Christian begins, and it's part of our definition. One of the important reasons is because, again, it's so contrary to the paradigm of the Christianity of this world. Typically, someone becomes a Christian in this world by merit of birth. They're born into a Christian family, so they are considered a Christian. They're born into a Christian nation, so they're considered a Christian. But again, we understand that Christ taught that the Father initiates that process. He selects people individually, and then he draws them. And how does he do that? It's an interesting thing to think about and consider how does God call people, or what's the characteristics we see of God's calling? Well, typically he does that through two steps opening their mind to understanding. They become enlightened. Things start making sense. 
The pieces of the puzzle start coming together in a way they didn't before. And number two, they have a motivation to act on what they, what they read, what they learn. So that's usually how we can discern if somebody is truly being called as a Christian. Number one, they start putting the pieces together. They have understanding. And number two, they have a motivation to act on that understanding. So the first part of our definition is that a Christian is someone specifically called by God the Father. Again, that continues to narrow our definition. Number two, a true Christian has repented of their sins and been baptized. A true Christian has repented of their sins and been baptized. Again, we hear these things and we take them for granted, but the concept of repentance really is not emphasized in the Christian world the way it is in the Church of God. And it's just so important that we are clear on on it. Let's go to the classic text, Acts 2, verse 37 and 38. Of course, we're breaking into Peter's Pentecost sermon here. And he defines this part of the process. Acts 2, verses 37 through 38. So we, we know that familiar question in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard this powerful sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Or we could reword this to men and brethren, how can we become a Christian? How can we act on this? So we, again, here, connecting this to our last point, we see the evidence of God's calling here. They heard the message, they understood it, So there was understanding. They understood what Peter was saying. And then number two, they had a motivation to act on it. What shall we do? Those who were not being called among that group would not have been asking that question. But those who were being called were asking, okay, I have a motivation. I need to act. I need to learn more. I need to move forward towards this. Again, God's calling understanding and motivation. So how does Peter respond? Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent, repent, turn. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, Peter gives them three things to do. It's not just believe. It's not just give your heart to the Lord. It's not just accept. He says repent. You know, that's acknowledge your sins, and, and that connects to God's law. We understand you repent of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore, to repent, you have to understand what the law is. Be baptized, number two, so there's something you do, you actively pursue baptism. And number three, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which of course we know occurs through the laying on of hands. And we'll cover that in the next point. So a true Christian, by the definition of God's word, is somebody who we've already seen, understands his truth, is motivated to do something about it, and then that leads them to repentance and baptism. That all has to be a part of the definition, which then necessarily leads us to point number three of our review. Point number three, a true Christian has God's spirit inside of them. A true Christian has God's spirit inside of them. As a result of baptism and laying on of hands, a true Christian receives the Holy Spirit of God. Of course, we know that. We read this in the last point, but it's so important, it it requires its own point. So let's turn to Romans 8, verse 9. 
Romans 8, verse 9, just to review this and solidify this. Romans 8, verse 9. Another important definition scripture that's a part of the process. We put it together with all these other scriptures. Romans 8, verse 9. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, he's talking to the Roman Christians, but Christians throughout all time, you are not in the flesh, you are not carnal, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So he's, he's saying you're, you're only of God, you're only a Christian, in essence, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So, again, a, a very important definition scripture that's a part of this whole puzzle, this whole teaching. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you to be a Christian in the fullest definition of the word. Now let's skip down a few verses to verses 13 through 14. He elaborates on this more. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh you will live. So we see the, the Spirit, this is one of the results of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is they go to war against the flesh. Overcoming sin is very important to them. And that's why we talk about it so much. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So these are who Christians are. This is what a Christian is, what a child of God is, begotten of God's Spirit those who are led by, and we saw earlier in verse 9, who have the Spirit of God in them. Those are Christians. So we're only truly a Christian, a child of God, if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And of course, when the Holy Spirit is inside of us, there are fruits. Christ talked about fruits. Paul again here talks about fruits. You're going to see a Christian with the Spirit inside of them growing, changing, fighting against sin building godly character, going from carnal to spiritual. That is a fruit of a Christian. That's what we want to see in the life of somebody and what we should see in the life of somebody who is truly fulfilling that, that word, that calling. But before we move on, I think it's important to consider the connection between receiving the Holy Spirit and obedience to God's law. What is the connection there? What is the connection? Well, let's review that back in Acts 5, verse 32. Acts 5, verse 32. Is it just because we could take that, one of the, some of those verses in Romans 8, and just say, well, it's not about, it's not about obeying the law. It's, it's about having the Spirit, and the Spirit is more important than the law. There are some people who, who make those kind of arguments. It's about being in the Spirit. And said, well, what is the connection between God's Holy Spirit and the law? Acts 5, verse 32. We see an important concept that the law plays a role in a Christian's life before they're baptized, and then we'll see after they're baptized. So what is the role of the law in a Christian's life before they're baptized? And this is specifically important for those in the audience who are not yet baptized. Acts 5, verse 32. We're cutting into the context, but it's okay here. Verse 32, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey him. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. 
So one of the necessary conditions to receiving the Holy Spirit is obedience to God. Now, how does that work? Does that mean somebody needs to perfect obedience to the law before they can ever even consider baptism, laying on of hands, and receiving the Holy Spirit? Is that what that means? Those who perfect obedience, then God will give the Holy Spirit to them. Sadly, sometimes there are people that I've talked to that, that have that kind of thinking in their state bef- when they're in a pre-baptismal state, and they, they kind of have this idea that they have to achieve a certain level of perfect, perfect righteousness before they can get baptized. Well, I'm not good enough, but when I reach this, whatever standard they think, then I'll be baptized. And some get this stuck on this idea that pre-baptism is about reaching this kind of good enough state, and then you can be baptized. And some people may read Acts 5, verse 32, and come to that conclusion. But that's not what Acts 5, verse 32 is saying. What, what it means is that before somebody is baptized, has hands laid on them, and receives the Holy Spirit, they have to have a basic understanding of God's law. They have to uh, at, have, to a certain level, an understanding of the necessity of obedience, and they have to be doing their best to obey as much as they understand and as much as they can without the Holy Spirit. So they must be making an effort before Holy Spirit comes, before baptism. Again, that's evidence that someone's being called. They understand the law of God and they do their best. They're motivated to try to obey it. They're not going to do it perfectly but again, that's, that's why then they pursue baptism, because they want to do it better. They want to continue to strive towards perfection. So then they receive the Holy Spirit, which gives them more understanding, a deeper understanding of the spirit of God's law, and leads them and empowers them to deeper obedience. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, verse 22, because it shows this role of the Holy Spirit after baptism and how that connects with obedience to God's law. So there must be obedience to God's law before baptism, understanding it of it, a motivation, a trying the best you can to obey. And then, of course, you're baptized, you have hands laid on you, you receive the Holy Spirit, and that strengthens us, again, to take it to another level and usually gives a better understanding of the spirit of the law. Sometimes people before baptism obey the letter, but then years after, after their baptism and then the years that go by, they learn a better understanding of the spirit. Well, look here what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So really what I'm focusing on there is obeying the truth through the Spirit. What Peter is talking about here is that the Spirit of God strengthens and, and helps us to obey God, obey the truth. He, he doesn't use the word law here, but what do you obey? You obey God's laws, you obey his commandments, you obey his principles. So here we see after the Spirit of God that obedience continues, but it's strengthened. We obey the truth through the Spirit. In other words, it strengthens and helps us to obey. So these verses really do complement each other. Again, before we receive God's Spirit, we make an effort to obey. We do the best we can. But then after we receive God's Spirit, we're further empowered to obey at a much deeper level. God's Spirit leads us to a much deeper understanding and a much deeper obedience of God's law.
And that now leads us to our fourth point, our fourth and final point this afternoon. A true Christian must obey God's law. Again, these, all these points are very closely tied together. A true Christian must obey God's law. And I make that its own point because, again, there are people who, who don't make that connection, who don't think obedience to the law is a part of Christianity. Well, this should be very basic to us. Let's turn to John 14 and verse 20. John 14, verse 20. Did Jesus Christ connect obedience to being a Christian? I think we already know the answer, but let's review it. John 14, verses 20 through 21. Is obedience a part of the picture? What is the connection of obedience to being a Christian? John 14, verse 20. Cutting into the context, cutting into the thought. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This connection between God and the Christian. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In essence, that's being a Christian having the love of the Father, having Christ manifest himself to us, that's being a Christian. So what does he say is a necessary condition? He who has my commandments and keeps them. So again, when, when, people, when people claim that the Church of God is legalist for emphasizing obedience and emphasizing God's law, we, we go back to the words of Christ because he emphasized the same thing. It's so basic, but always we have to remember that Christ connected law-keeping, an understanding and obedience of his commandments with being his, with being a Christian. And then, of course, this is reinforced by John the Apostle, Christ's good friend. Let's go to 1 John 2. Look at those classic scriptures. They are memory scriptures. Nobody would have understood the teachings of Jesus Christ better than the one who was so close to him, his, his, his best friend in the flesh, John, the son of Zebedee. And what did John write about keeping the commandments? Did he connect it with Christianity? John 2, verses 3 through 4. Now by this we know that we know him. That's, again, another way of saying, by this we know that we're a Christian, if we keep his commandments. So John puts a big if there, if we keep his commandments. Christianity and commandment keeping are tied together, and they cannot be separated. Verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, very strongly worded way of saying, if you try to disconnect commandment-keeping from true Christianity, you're a liar. And there's nothing, there's nothing of value, nothing of truth in anything you say. It's a very strong way of making that point. Let's go ahead where he reinforces the point in 1 John 5, verses 2 through 3. He basically says the same thing again, makes the same point. Again, this is written towards the end of the first century, Antinomian ideas were coming into the church. 
Gnostic thought was coming into the church, and John was hammering home this point. And I think he knew he he was inspired to make these statements because the church and God's people would need these going into the future because over and over again, these arguments trying to disconnect Christianity from the law of God would be made. 1 John 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Again, he's just saying, by this we know. This is the evidence. This is the sign, or a sign, that we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God. And, and you know, we, when you read what other people write out there, there are many people who try to disconnect love from commandment keeping, but they can't be disconnected. They are connected by scripture. So can you be a true Christian without believing and making an effort to keep the commandments? Well, according to these scriptures, no. That would break the definition. And this is why it's so dangerous when the definition of a Christian is expanded, especially expanded to be given to those who don't obey God's law. This is why we believe that a true Christian will be keeping God's Sabbath, the fourth of God's commandments. You cannot be a true Christian without keeping the Sabbath. That is just the testimony of God's word. We don't teach this to be elitist or exclusivist, but to stay faithful to the revealed word of Scripture. And it's so important that we keep that definition strong. So that's the last point we'll cover today. Let's now put these four points together into one basic statement, which we could use as a good, solid, working definition of a Christian based on Scripture. Putting all these four points together, a true Christian is a person, a man or a woman, who has been called by God, repented of their sins, been baptized, has God's Spirit inside of them, and strives to obey God's commandments. That is a pretty solid, scriptural, working definition of a Christian. And each element of that, of course, can be supported by numerous scriptures. When we combine these scriptures we just covered with the words of Matthew 7, what Christ said there in the Sermon on the Mount, we see the Bible gives a very detailed definition of what a true Christian actually is. Where the world around us gives a very vague and very expansive definition that can apply to, really, billions of people, it's essential, and again, in God's church, that we teach the biblical definition. Where the world's definition is expansive, the biblical definition is very narrow. True Christianity, as defined by Jesus, is a narrow path, and when we look at our world, we see that very few have found that path and are walking that path. Now, we know that there are many good people in the world, kind people who do good things, some who excel us in doing good works, and many of them do profess Christianity. But we have to understand that teaching and understanding this clear definition doesn't condemn them because we understand this in the context of what we review every year at the last great day, that there is coming a time when God will open the calling and the doors to true Christianity. He'll, He'll make that narrow path that's very narrow now, the wide path that everybody can find and that everybody can follow in a different world. But in the meantime, the best service we can do as God's people 
is to clearly teach and define and proclaim true biblical Christianity so that those God is calling can learn it, discover it, and hopefully begin walking that narrow path themselves. So, brethren, hopefully reviewing these scriptures today has solidified the biblical definition of what a true Christian is and will help us and will help motivate us to continue faithfully following that narrow path ourselves.